Amen. Let me uh, encourage you to stay standing for the reading of God's Word. We're coming to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're actually going to get to the end of chapter 5 today, and then we'll have one chapter left in this book, 1 Timothy. This is the Word of the Lord for this morning. I'm going to begin in verse 19 and read down to verse 25. This is the Word of the Lord. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also, good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. It's really, really good to be with you this morning. I feel like I haven't preached at all here in 20, what year is this? 2022. And I am delighted to be here with you. I'm grateful for the Lord's grace to bring me to somewhat of a level of coherence that was better than last week. Uh, it's 11-hour time change from here to Uganda where I spent the last two weeks, and so I'm finally now being able to fully think. I hope. We'll see. If you have your Bibles, why don't you go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, and uh, as you're doing that, let me just thank you, church, for your prayers. They were answered in incredible ways. I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, where he says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And he goes on to say that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And by God's grace, it wasn't by death. And by God's grace, it wasn't by somebody getting really violently ill. And so we were able to just fully engage in the ministry that God had for us. And I am convinced it's because we were upheld by the prayers of God's people. So from my heart to you, let me just say thank you so much for your prayers. God answered them in great, great ways. It's better for me to do that when the clapping is not towards me. That was towards the Lord, right? If we suck at a clap for me, I'm just going to let it slide, okay? But when the Lord is worthy of praise, I'm just going to get on us a little bit for that. It's going to be how it always is. Um, I don't have time. We know how I preach. Uh, I'm going to go over anyway, almost for sure. Uh, but let me just say, I am very, very excited for the ministry partnership potential in Uganda. Uh, we spent, we probably interacted with 200 pastors 
And there is serious work to be done in church planting and leadership development, and there is a wide open hole for us to fill. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing generational partnership going on. Uganda is one of the youngest countries in the world. 47% of their population is under 18, which makes me feel like an elder statesman there, okay? And that's because an entire generation was killed off in the civil war that they had. And so you're talking about a population that's very, very young, growing tremendously, and their desire, their strategic thinking about church planning. All of this is divided into tribes. There's 65 some odd tribes in Uganda. Several of them are unreached. We're going to pray and seek and work with these guys to reach some of these unreached tribes in Uganda. And uh, I'm just fired up. We took two of our interns. It was fantastic. They led, they taught. It was encouraging. And uh, more, more, more to come, much more to come. There are so many things that are like pans and fryers right now in our church. And we are on the cusp of unloading several of these. But rest assured, church, the Lord is doing a lot. There's a lot going on behind the, the scenes. And we will continue to bring those out as the Lord kind of matures them to a place where we can start to address those. But it's, it's exciting stuff. I will say, I saw the significance of 1 Timothy on display in some different ways. Uh, when uh, the qualifications of an elder are that you ought to be the husband of one wife, I, I never uh, thought about the implications of, a, of an entire culture that largely uh, is involved and engaged in polygamy. And so it would be very weird for me uh, to come to your small group and say, hi, I'm Scott. Uh, I have one wife. Her name is Erin, uh, and, and my kids, and you'd be like, that's weird. Like, why would he even have to mention that? And yet, that's literally how everybody introduced themselves when they're there. And there's these battles about, like, hey, if you got two wives, think about the double level of management. Because, you know, in the qualifications of an elder, it's like you got to manage your household well. Well, if a dude can manage two wives, <laughs> he's got to be a killer elder, Right? <laughs> And we're like, actually, I get that. No. (laughs) But like, I understand that, right? And 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 I love our church because I I so love that we just want the next thing in the Bible. You know, we just want the next passage, right? And so we did two weeks. Who does two weeks on widow care? Right? Not if you want momentum. Not if you want to be the next cool church. No, we're going to preach what's next because I'm a slave of the text. It's God's word in our church. And here we're like uh, widows. Like, I don't know. I maybe know one. I should probably take care of my own family. Maybe like afford something at the eschaton for the ones I don't like, you know, or whatever. Um, That's just between us. All right. Um, But there, the church is 40% children, 50% women, and probably less than 10% men. Of the 50% women in the church, a a large chunk of them are widows. And I'm talking dire, destitute, hand-to-mouth widows. So when Paul seems to have this burden to make the church take responsibility for the widows, I saw it. That's what we need to do, right? That's how the church is supposed to be. Because if the family and relatives and, and, and these folks aren't taking care of the widows, it's gonna put a massive burden on the church. And you see it in a completely different light. Much more kind of a biblical culture as you're looking at it from their lens uh, than we have here. But nonetheless, the word of God is timeless. It's powerful. 
and uh, saw a lot of things from a different perspective, which was, which was good to see again. So, and I was glad to be absent last week for the double honor pay your pas- uh, pastor message. So uh, I, I tend to leave strategically uh, during tough texts and pass those off to Chris. And so I'm kidding. I, I do sometimes. It looks like that. It really does. Uh, but this week, you're going to see, I, I have it no easier for myself. It's no less awkward <laughs> this week than last week. And uh, so we're going to jump into it. The title of the message this morning is Rules of Engagement Regarding Elders. Rules of Engagement Regarding Elders. And we're in the middle of this section. 17 to 25 is one section. We're preaching it in two parts, but don't be confused by the fact that we're kind of cutting it up into two. It's one section, and it's a really important section because it's one of Paul's emphases this entire time, and it's essentially this, as go the leader, so goes the church. We understand that, don't we? As go the leader, so goes the church. It's one of the major reasons why Paul told Timothy to remain at Ephesus. He wanted to see the church restored to a biblical eldership. Because the church's ability to put what Christ wants perceived of the gospel on display demands faithful, biblical eldership. And of course, when I use the word elder, I'm talking about those spiritually mature men in the office of pastor, elder, overseer, responsible for the shepherding of the church. And that's why Paul said last week through Pastor Chris that if you have faithful elders ruling well, diligently laboring on your behalf, they're deserving of double honor. They're deserving of your respect, and they're deserving of remuneration. But what happens if the elders go wayward? What do you do then? Some of you have experience trying to address this in former churches, do you not? And so hopefully you can feel a little bit of the weight and Timothy's pain, and what he actually has to do. See, here's the, I know this is going to sound crazy, but elders who are kind of taking a biblical drift, either in morality or doctrine, don't love, aren't wild about people coming and addressing them on it. They call it direction, but you've been patient enough and prayerful enough to see it's not direction change, it's a drift. And you try to address it and nothing happens. You even have some bold elders within the elder board that see the problem, and they try to address the issue. And what happens? They magically disappear. Not a peep, not a word, gone. Is that how you're supposed to handle it? Let's see. Here's the big idea for this morning. Paul's really clear. I was just showing one of the interns my notes that I have up here, and I I have all the verbs parsed on a piece of paper, which means I'm just like undressing the verb to figure out what it is. Is it an imperative? Is it a main verb? Is it a supporting verb? Is it, you know, because you got to get the point of the passage by understanding the language of what's there. And there are so many commands. There are so many commands in this text. So here's our work. Paul's saying this. Paul's saying, follow the rules of engagement towards a healthy eldership. You want a healthy eldership and you need one in the church. Why? Because we want the gospel to be on display, right? You can't have the gospel purely on display when your elders and pastors are shady, okay? And I recognize that as I'm going to preach this with passion because I'm committed to this, what I'm doing in preaching this is saying, if this is me, this is what you should do. Hear me. 
If I go bonkers at some point, I'm asking for this to take place. And just like I'm asking you to own up, when you come to become a member, before you kind of go off and do something crazy and want to plummet to your spiritual suicide, I'm asking you on a sunny day to engage and say, I want you to know that we're your shepherds now on a sunny day, but you know, we're also saying that when that day goes and you want to plummet to your spiritual suicide, we're going to be there. And you're like, uh-huh. So we have it in agreement on a sunny day. I'm saying today is a sunny day by God's grace, but I want you to know that even if it's a cloudy day for me because of my own sin, I'm in this boat. This is what should happen. Clear? Here's the first thing. And I wouldn't say the first thing in general because the first thing was last week, which is honor your pastors. Give them double honor. But the second thing we're going to see in the first thing for this week's message is protect elders by rejecting unsubstantiated charges. Protect elders by rejecting unsubstantiated charges. And I'm so grateful that this is here. Because pastors who labor in the trenches of ministry are worthy not just of honor, but of protection from you. Those of you who have been around elders or have had the role of elder understand that elders wear large targets. If you don't understand that, elders wear large targets. It comes with the territory of the job. Satan would want nothing more than to pick off an elder. If you can pick off an elder, you can mess with the church. If Satan can't get the elder pastor to stumble into sin, and again, I'm using those words interchangeably today, so if you hear elder and pastor, they're interchangeable. If Satan can't get the pastor elder to stumble into sin, he's glad to use others to stir up some false accusation to discredit them due to how it affects the church and her witness. Satan loves to discredit the witness of the church, and elders are a great, easy source to have some sort of false accusation come about them and cause a whole bunch of concern in the church. And Satan will do it in some ways that are obvious and some ways that are less obvious. I was telling you about the whole plummeting to your spiritual suicide. So you have to understand that where, where I spend most of my time is in dealing with the rabid sheep and the wolves that we find. And suicidal sheep don't like being pleaded with to not plummet to their spiritual suicide. And shepherds go because they love you, because we agreed up front that if you were to go a little bit off the beaten path, we would in love come after you to seek you out, to rebuke where needed, gently with patience and teaching and all of that stuff. But there's something about being rebuked for sin that when the rabid sheep is affected in that way or when we're pleading with them a little bit too strong, there's the tendency to have some sort of a conversation with others about they didn't like the tone of the elders. They didn't like the way it was handled. And they start to bring in accusations about things that are actually not verified. They're not substantiated. They're feelings and opinions. That's one of the ways that the enemy can do it. Another one of the ways that charges can just kind of be around in the church is um, actually, it's interesting, through former pastor elders that are no longer pastor elders. You would think that having former pastor elders in the church is a huge blessing, and in a lot of ways, and with many of them, it is. But then there's a kind of person that comes into the church and goes, you know, if in your first, like, two seconds of meeting someone, they almost forget their name, they're so desperate to tell you they used to be a pastor, that's a concern, right? Like, hi, I'm so-and-so, I used to be a pastor. Interesting. 
Like that right there is like a yellow flag to me. Like why are you so quick to have to tell, I'll have conversations out there where I don't even address it myself. And people don't even know like that I'm the pa- one of the pastors here. But there are some that immediately want to jump in. And what they do is, and, and here's the thing, they draw because they're former pastor elders, they draw this little following to themselves within the church. And they're seen as like the guy, right, in this little group. And most of these people, they just want to mentor. And you're a former pastor elder? Oh my gosh, that's amazing. And so they come under, and what happens is they become the sounding board slash and or the instigator of subtle, unverified little assumptions or words about the current elders and how this former so-called pastor elder would have done things differently. Maybe either by receiving it or by spreading it, This kind of person exists. This kind of person is in the church, have seen this over the years. It's one of the many ways that charges can start to subtly infiltrate the church. And what's interesting is no one ever asked the former pastor elder, why aren't you a a pastor elder anymore? Because some have legitimate reasons why they're not. They've retired. They've transitioned for a good reason. But some are not pastor elders anymore because they've been disqualified. But no one seems to ever ask that question. They're just so glad they have a mentor. Maybe I'm sharing something that you guys are like, I don't even see. I love you guys. I'm just giving you awareness of things that I'm not talking about anything in particular. No specific circumstance because I've seen it several times. It's one of the ways that charges can come up against an elder board, grievances that are unverified. Add to that, in our day, there's a lingering skepticism about positions of leadership, right? It's built into the kind of, almost the neo-Marxism that's going on, right? This kind of tear down. If there's any leadership, any structures, any authority that you could, by your power, oppress others, let's get rid of that altogether. And so we're just wary of leadership in general. Add to that, there's this Me Too movement and the Church Too movement. And so what is it with leaders or anybody in that position? You are guilty until proven innocent. But that's not it. It's the opposite. And yet it's operating because we have the skepticism, because we have the cynicism, because we assume that we read the headlines of the next pastor elder team that has this huge blowout in the papers. That must be how most churches are. That must be how most of the situations are. Add to that the human proclivity to believe the worst. Add to that people's love for gossip, which is why magazines that I could name aplenty get so much business because we love gossip. And here's what R. Kent Hughes, a great pastor, said. He said, pastors, because of all these things, are tragically vulnerable. So, what does Paul say to do? Here's what he says. Do not admit a charge against an elder. The language literally is stop, stop accepting accusations. You're already doing it. Stop. The word admit there means to entertain. We we aren't even to entertain it, let alone investigate it, let alone believe it subtly in the back of your head. We are to flatly reject is the idea. You are to ignore is the idea. You are to get familiar with saying this phrase, I don't have ears for that. See, most people aren't bold enough to do that. 
I have loved doing that. When someone's had a complaint about a pastor that's an unverified accusation, I love to say, hey, listen, brother, I love you. I don't have ears for that. I'll, let me stop you right there. Here's, let, me, let me tell you what most of the time happens. Most of the time, um, you may disagree with what someone's saying about some sort of accusation against the pastor elder, but you say nothing about it. You just sit there quietly. It's your way of going, ah, I don't know what to do with that, but I'm not going to say anything. So what happens is you do nothing, it just continues to go on, and this is saying you need to flat out reject it. You need to have a deaf ear towards it. The reason for this is, as was said, people will say just about anything. One of the things people will say these days that I hear often, it's the phrase, unsafe. Pastor, this so-and-so, we had this interaction, and it was tough, usually because it involves sin. <laughs> and then they'll come out and say, it was unsafe. I just feel unsafe. I feel unsafe to be at the church. I feel unsafe around them. I, I remember, um, I, I know I, I look young, I am young. I, I've been doing this for nine years, so um, that, that's kind of cool. And, uh, but early on, I was such an optimist as a pastor, right? And I uh, just felt like, I got a lot of sin, you know, things that the Lord's working through in my own heart, but I just felt like I had good intentions for ministry and just believed having a noble heart and a desire to help people fight sin, you wouldn't run into that stuff. So I remember older pastors giving me notes and telling me, hey, here's some of the things that are going to happen. I'm writing them down going, yeah, wow, that sucks for him, you know, I'm going to clearly avoid that myself. And I remember the first thing, it was still shocking to me to this day, I'll never forget it, it was the first time someone made the accusation because of a conversation I had to have, praise God, the elder said, why don't you bring a witness to that conversation? I'm just not totally comfortable with how this is going to play out. Your elders are wise, by the way. Thank God I brought an, uh, a witness because it went way, way, way south. And then the accusation to me was that I was unsafe to be around children, let alone adults. And like, that's obviously, I mean, some of you don't know me, but let's just go with probably not true. Okay, I don't know. I look a little creepy, perhaps. I'm not sure how I'm perceived up here. Um, but when you have like an optimist, really soft heart to the Lord, you're just like, I, I let that affect me for way too long. Um, protect your pastors by saying, I don't have ears for that. That's outlandish. And listen, if you don't believe in your elders, you probably shouldn't come to church here. They're men. We're gonna break. We're gonna let you down. We're gonna mess some things up for sure, but we will do our absolute best to get it right in honor the Lord. And if you, if you aren't behind that, that's gonna be a problem because this responsibility is here to protect your pastors. Listen, he transitions and says that there, there is a time where you do entertain it, but the only time you ever entertain it, and it doesn't even mean it's necessarily true when you're supposed to entertain it, doesn't mean it's true, would be when he says it would come on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So he says, don't admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. They, they have to, you can't just have any witness, by the way. Jesus had a bunch of witnesses for his trial too. They have to be credible. They have to be confirming witnesses. You have to have evidence, good evidence. All this goes back to the Old Testament. It's so interesting. There's such a continuity in scripture. How do you deal with this? Deuteronomy 17.6 made it clear. Paul's just 
riding those coattails of the Old Testament law. Deuteronomy 19.15 made it clear no accusation was to be upheld apart from two to three significant, credible witnesses. If you do, though, have two to three significant, credible witnesses that have a, have a corroborating story, have legitimate evidence of a pastor in waywardness, what do you do about that? Paul answers that question. The second thing you're supposed to do is publicly rebuke those in persistent sin. You are supposed to publicly rebuke those in persistent sin. Pastors are worthy of protection. They're worthy of protection up to a point. The question is, where is that point? When does protection now give way to what you're supposed to do? And the answer to that, the point at which protection is to be given away or to stop or to cease is right here, persistent sin. Pastors are worthy of protection up to a point. What's the point? Persistent sin. As for those who persist in sin or continue in sin, and the implication is, listen, if we're, we all persist in sin, but if you have an area of your life, you say, what sin? Well, it's not in the text what kind of sin. It just says sin. But what do we know about 1 Timothy? 1 Timothy has a context. What do we know about the qualifications of an elder? Well, we know a bunch from 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7. So we could probably assume that some of the areas that elders might need to be held accountable for, examples of ways that you could persist in sin would be all the character qualities in 1 Timothy 3, Right? So if an elder's persisting in sin, in what way? In not being the husband of one wife, not being a one-woman man, you got a problem. Correct? If an if, if elder is persisting in not being above reproach, you have a problem. If an elder is persisting in not being gentle but being violent, you have a problem, right? Ongoing, no true repentance. They may say they're repenting, they may say they're sorry, but there's a difference between saying you're sorry and actually repenting. Doesn't mean elders don't battle sin. It means there's an area of persistent sin upon which repentance doesn't seem to be clear. The evidence is there. The witnesses are there. This is the situation that's being talked about. When a credible accusation with accompanying witnesses is made, evidence is investigated and found to be true, elders must be, here it is, rebuked. But not just rebuked, we must be, I must be, were this me, publicly rebuked before all. Do you see that? What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the church. When you're gathered like this, with everybody here, he needs to be publicly rebuked for his sin. You go, that seems a little bit harsh. Well, well listen, like the sin of someone in the position of pastor elder is more serious, therefore it's to be punished more severely. This was the same distinction. If you read the Old Testament, this is the same distinction they had in the law. Go to the book of Leviticus. It's, it's that, that's a book, right? Whew. My goodness, but if you read in like Leviticus chapter 4, you'll see the difference between what they ask of leaders and what they ask of regular people in the congregation, regular people in the, in the makeup of the nation of Israel. Hey, here, here's what you, leaders are held to this standard. The rest are held to this standard. Go look at the difference between Leviticus 4.22 and Leviticus 4.27. You see this. 
that what Paul is making clear here is that if you're the model of spiritual maturity, which the pastors and elders are supposed to be, then persistent sin is to be dealt with such that it can't remain in the dark. It has to come out. Now, now this isn't just a rebuke for the pastor, but this is a restraint for the rest. Notice how he says it. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Who's the rest there? Well, at least needs to be the rest of the elders. They need to be like almost wetting their pants over, over this. You know what I'm saying? Like fearful. But by extension, would you agree it would extend to the whole congregation? I will tell you this right now. We have grossly missed in the modern American church context a healthy fear of God. We, we care way too much about man, what man thinks and not nearly enough about what God thinks. And it's evidence in how few churches practice church discipline. It is redemptive. It is for the purity of the church. And most Christians would be in an outrage if they saw it actually practice. We practice it here because we love people too much. And we will go through the process. And we have been through several steps before. None have ever come to the front, but that day is coming. And we will do it because we love the Lord Jesus Christ. We love his church. We want to preserve the purity of the church. And most importantly, we want to see that believer restored to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's process. This is how we operate. But most Sadly, or it feels like a good chunk of churches don't do this. Why? Because it would mess up the church. What would seekers think? What would my lost friends think? Uh, your lost friends will think God's holy. You're like, well, that's the thing I'm trying to tiptoe around. I'm not trying to get to the holy thing. I'm trying to talk about the gifts God gives. Yeah, but the gifts come on the backdrop of holiness. Well, he's uncomfortable. What am I going to talk about later? Talk about his holiness. Talk about God's holiness. They, they're scared now. Uh-huh. And God has made a way. His name is Jesus. There's only one way. There's no other means to heaven. There's no other means to being right with God than through Jesus. He lived a life you didn't live. It was perfect. He died the death you should have died in your place, paying the penalty for your sin, the full weight of the wrath of God, deserving your sins, deserving the sins of all who would ever trust in Jesus laid upon Jesus. That's crazy. For you, rose three days later for your salvation. We don't, we don't even do this in our homes we, we don't even discipline like we should be. There's an appropriate, age-appropriate way to discipline, but, but most parents are like, that's, that's old-fashioned, and yet it's all through the Bible. <laughs> and you know what's funny? Is knowing sin will be dealt with firmly is a great deterrent to future sin. Just ask any good disciplining family. Some of the best young testimonies I've heard in the church are through families where they tell their story about how do you know you're a sinner when you're seven? How do you know you're a sinner when you're eight? Whatever that cusp is of like, are we baptizing this little kid or not? Right? There's no age in the scriptures. So you're like, uh, dad, what do you think? But then you listen to a story and they'll start talking about their discipline. Why? Because that's when they knew they were a sinner. They saw it and you can discipline redemptively and you should. 
because it's a great deterrent to sin. He's saying this, knowing sin will be made public and dealt with firmly is a great deterrent. It should cause us to stand in fear and we, church, must decide. Are we going to uh, protect the reputation of Christ and his church and uphold the biblical standard that's here or are we going to protect the man, even if it's me? I hope it's Christ. Because what happens is, there's this, um, but, but the man is doing so much good. If this came out, it would be bad for the kingdom. So what? You don't think God could raise up another person? God can make animals talk if he wants to. This is the, the outrage of our day. I'm fired up today. This is the outrage of our day. This is the catastrophic consequence of pragmatism in the church. We're more concerned about outcomes than we are about obedience. This church, the name doxa, can come or it can go. It can stay for generations or it can leave in one generation. God's church moves on. We are called to be obedient, but, 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 but doxa might go down. So what? God is calling us to be obedient. He takes care of the outcomes. This is against me. I understand that now if I really blow it later, you're going to be like, remember that sermon you preached? <laughs> like I'm aware what I'm doing. I'm setting the bar high. Because what happens is, when the pastor does this later on, they're like, oh, uh, that was, you got to take that message in context. That's not really what I was saying. No, I want it to be really clear what I'm saying. Because Christ is worthy. Christ is worthy. It's not me. It's not a pastor. It's next man up for God. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. But the temptation is going to be to let it slide. That's why he has verse 21 here. You, we are going to be tempted to let it slide. We love our pastors. We have good intentions. We mean well. It's going to be to want to let it slide. That's why Paul, I feel like he loads up his gun. Like, listen. How do you make something really, 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 really serious? 2 Timothy 4 has that about preaching the word. I charge you in the presence of God. Boom. And of Christ Jesus, boom. Who is to judge the living and the dead, boom. And by his appearing and his coming, preach the word. It's kind of the same thing here. Timothy, in the presence of God, the judge. And of Christ Jesus, the one to whom judgment has been given, and of the elect angels, the instruments through whom judgment come, I charge you, I admonish you to keep these rules. Do this. Do what we're talking about. Without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. This imagery is divine court imagery. And God the judge and Christ the one to whom judgment is given and elect angels who are instruments of judgment are called as witnesses here. Three witnesses, no less. You catch that? Paul brings out all the stops. Three 
witnesses. He's saying, I call you before the holiest of holies in heaven. Do these things. Do these things that I'm telling you. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. And do this, do this assessment process, do this evaluation, whatever it's going to take to make it clear, to get to the bottom, to make sure you're not bringing up an accusation that's not substantiated. Do that and do it without prejudging and do it without partiality. He's saying prejudging is like stressing objectivity. Be guided only by the truth. Don't have your mind made up before you come to the case. Do the work. Okay, this is an elder. This is someone who should be protected. Maybe you don't like the elder. Maybe you're kind of like, I could go for like someone else doing his job more often, right? You're like, that dude that preaches, he's intense. I could go for someone a little bit lighter, more jokes, more, you know, rah-rah, you know. Um, so, so maybe we just double down here. No, no, no. No, don't do that. Like, don't do that. <laughs> don't prejudge and don't, don't have partiality too. And this is, the, this is the, like the other side, you know? You're like, that's my guy. That's my boy. He's a light for the kingdom. What would we do without him? We'd move on. Guys, again, this is so, so, so big. God cares about the purity of the church and I'm concerned so often the church cares about the PR of the church. God wants purity. We can so often be concerned about pure, uh, PR. What do I mean by that? Um, well, we have church size to hold on to. This church is getting bigger. So you almost, if you're not careful, the temptation is, well, we got to maintain it. We got we to keep this. Well, what are we going to do? Well, that thing's bad. You find out something about Ritter, like that would affect the church, right? He's not here today. He's not here today. And we know he doesn't watch church when he's away. <laughs> right? And so, but if he, if he messes up, like, bad, it's going to mess up the church because you guys trust Ritter. I shouldn't say Ritter, Pastor Chris. <laughs> I call him Ritter. You guys call him Pastor Chris, all right? If that happens, this is a problem. If he goes south in some significant way, that's a problem. And so what happens sometimes in churches is so many churches, they won't rebuke publicly, which is said here. They'll just remove that pastor quietly out the back door and we'll all be wondering where Ritter went. Why? Because we got to maintain the church's momentum. You have some great noble thought about, you know, but, we, but there's so many people that need the gospel. If the church were to have this go public, it wouldn't, God, trust God. Trust God. But what about my friend and, and his relationship with the Lord? It's on the rocks and uh, trust the Lord. Be obedient to God. You don't think God can figure that stuff out? Some will just remove the pastor quietly. Others will let them resign. That pastor that's in persistent, egregious sin, he, he's allowed to resign Right, that's the play. And then what happens is, magically, that person self-restores himself back into ministry somewhere else. That's insane. That's going to happen because we have no way of stopping that. But to think that's biblical is way off the rocker. Or, or another thing, uh, they resign and they find another church that, I'll just say it, won't hold to the biblical standard and they get rehired there and the church that rehires them makes it this big ploy about how gracious they are. 
to be the first ones to restore this guy, right? And, and they'll even clap about it and they'll, they'll misapply verses that have no application in this context. Like, uh, well, he who was without sin cast the first stone. And everyone's like, oh. <laughs> love my church. So much grace. That's not grace. That is not grace, but it is, it is. Grace is caring for someone in their sin to help them work through their sin biblically. That's grace. Remember, grace, the whole problem in Romans 6 is shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound by no means? Listen, I'm, I'm for certain situations of restoration. But to like bounce out of the process that the elders have someone in, resign, and then get rehired someone else and have that church like project as look how gracious we are, it's an undermining of the text. You can just be pretty clear that if you think you're being gracious and you're undermining a biblical text, you probably have something off. Paul's like, heaven, heaven is watching. Heaven is watching. Do, do this. Now, I think you're with me when I think... Um, so instead of doing this a lot, it would be better if we just tried to avoid this altogether. Anyone uh, in favor of just like, how about none of this? How about I'm still here and your pastor in 35 years and within reason, a lot of our other pastors are either here or still faithfully in ministry. Wouldn't that be great? Are we good with that? Okay, great. So like, maybe we just like try to avoid the whole thing. So how do we do that? Paul kind of goes back to the start and goes, hey, the best way to avoid kind of all this drama that's going on in the church in Ephesus that we get this from is to, to do this. Number three, patiently assess and appoint elders. Do it patiently. Assess them before you appoint them. That's what you should camp out. <laughs> he says, do not be hasty. If I had one word to describe the errors that we have made as elders in judging particular circumstances and situations and how best to navigate them, I think every single elder on our board would say hastiness has caused us the most problems. A, a, I would call it this for the most part. I'm not blaming. I'm just saying this is what it is. An others-imposed hurriedness to do things their way. That's what normally happens. And so as elders, you're like wanting to shepherd and care for the flock. And so you're like trying to speed up. But they're like, this whole thing happened and exploded in my life. And I need you to work now. Do it now. And this is what I want you to do. Do it now. Kick them out of the church. You're like, that's not even how it works. Do it now. Do it now. Do it now. We don't do that anymore. We assess every, situ every single situation that comes in and go, hey, what can we grow on? How can we get better? What can we do? And one of the things we've just been crystal clear on is we move at God's pace, not anyone else's pace. And I'm not talking about egregious errors. I'm talking about ways we can grow in the process of how we handle things as elders. That the hasty line is one of the most prominent issues we would say we've had. So I take this really seriously when he says, don't be hasty. Go at God's time. 
Don't feel rushed to get elders in there. Don't feel rushed to put guys in that position of authority. Don't be lasty, uh, hasty in the laying on of hands. You can see where I got that, okay? Lasty, just laying in the place of hasty. We got it, all right? It's clear, we're moving on. Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. What's he talking about there? Well, we have it pretty clear in the New Testament. A man was appointed to ministry and commissioning in the sense of being set apart for ministry by the laying on of hands. He's talking about a person entering into that role and responsibilities. Paul's saying, don't ordain men to ministry too hastily. For if you hurry a man into ministry and he is unfit for ministry, you take part, elder pastors, in the sins of others. Whoa. Where am I getting that? Well, I'm just getting it from the next command. Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. If someone unqualified is appointed without a process to assess his doctrine and his life, Paul says Timothy will share in some sense in that and bear responsibility for the sins committed. Either the sins overlooked of that man or the sins future committed, you will bear responsibility, Timothy, for that. You will literally, the language is you will fellowship in their sin. Now, elders aren't going to get it right all the time. Right? There's a process, but elders aren't going to get it right all the time. You need to have a process, though. That's the difference. You need to have a process. How do you assess for a time someone's life, someone's doctrine, someone's ministry, someone's heart, someone's care, someone's competencies? How do you do that? Well, you figure out a way biblically to say these are the things that matter, and then you give it enough time to say here's where that should flesh out, and then you evaluate their life. But you need to have something there because if you don't have something there and they go off the deep end, you're participating in some sense. There's a level of culpability if you don't have any process in place. So we have a process in place, praise God. But this is pretty serious, right? And then he flips it and says, here's the other side of it, keep yourself pure, right? It's the other side of not taking part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Christ has purified you through his work on the cross. You walk as pure men and women in the church, we are to keep ourselves pure. He's talking about here a kind of purity, especially as it pertains to the elders, of literally a watchful um, care over your own uprightness by properly and patiently examining pastor elders. He's saying, listen, if, if you're keeping yourself pure in the process, the church will be healthier for it, right? Because you'll have good, healthy elders, I need us to hone in on what I just said. Purity should lead to health in the church. Purity should lead to health. Right? Because then we get verse 23, and it's like, what the heck was Paul doing? Is that, is that ADD? Like, wh where's he going with that? He was writing, he's like, squirrel. Oh, wait, that thing about the alcohol you're not drinking, you know? It's like... What's going on there? And here's what I want to say. Um, it, it's almost for sure in the original. So this wasn't just like plopped in there like, I don't know, some of the different texts, manuscripts, we just were throwing it in there. It, it, it's confidently in the original, almost for sure. 
So, so he says, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. He's going, man, if we can be pure in the process of assessing elders, that's going to lead to a healthy church. Hey, speaking of health, speaking of purity, Timothy, are you still on that like only drinking water thing? Because remember, there's some asceticism going on in the church, right? It was seen as being more spiritual if you didn't get married or you didn't eat certain foods or you didn't decide to drink certain beverages because you want to be pure. And on this principle, Paul's calling Timothy on something because he's obviously evidently heard that Timothy has been having struggles with his stomach because back then, water carried diseases. And wine was a way to uh, uh, help with that because wine, wine does some magic with water and, and deals with some of those digestive ailments for you so you don't have those problems and he's calling Timothy with this thought of purity in mind to say, by way of indirect application, don't let this vow that you have committed to, and I love your heart, Timothy, you want to be pure, but don't let that vow of purity to only drinking water keep you from what could do your body well. He's talking about using wine in a medicinal sense. This is not like, hey, your Friday afternoons would be better if, that's not what this is. <laughs> like, did he say that? It's not a sin to drink. That's not the point of this text, right? Like small group weirdly gets taken over by verse 23 alone, you know? We're like we've missed the whole point, okay? That's not, please no. It is to say purity should lead to health, not exacerbate harm. So when you're doing something that seems uber religious and it's, you're still sick because of it, you're still enduring all this harm because of it when you could just, adjust something. You have the freedom to adjust. And I love your heart for purity, Timothy, but listen, you're not getting any better. It's making the situation worse, if not just lingering on indefinitely when you could take a little wine. And so he's actually literally commanding him to do that for the sake of his health. Because true purity, church, leads to health. True purity leads to health. It leads to health in the church and it leads to health in their lives And then on that subject, he continues on. I know this seems weird, but he continues on in verses 24 to 25 and goes, let me help you with four principles for how to get healthy elders, okay? L let me just break it down for you with four principles. Listen, you're not gonna pick elders perfectly. That's not on you ultimately. You have to have a process in place, okay? You need to at least be engaged in a vetting process and so work in cooperation with God's intention ultimately to judge human sin. So he gives two scenarios, two when assessing people and their sin, and two in assessing people and their good deeds, two for assessing people that would be unfit for ministry, and two for assessing people who would be fit for ministry. And here's what he says. Here are the first two. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment. First one. But the sins of others appear later, second one. It's actually pretty straightforward. He's saying some men are clearly unfit for ministry. That's the first one. Some men are clearly unfit for ministry. So your assessment should be easy. They're going to walk in the door and right behind them is going to come their sin. That's going to be clear. They're not fit to be an elder. Certain people, their sin will be conspicuous. You should avoid those people. 
But the sins of others, he says, appear later. In other words, that through a proper examination process will be found unfit. The elders are to engage in careful investigation, and eventually sins will surface. Not all sins. You try your best to get behind as much as you can. You try your best to get over the hump of the American modern problem, which is if the guy is gifted, you give him the platform, right? This helps us to get over the giftedness thing, right? Gifts in a guy can bring an awesome crowd, okay? But godliness is what you're looking for in an elder. Gifts is what everyone goes, oh, oh my goodness, that guy's so gifted, that's amazing. And we're like, okay, but it's godliness that we care about, right? And then, and, and so some people will put their best foot forward, they won't share this, it won't come to light, it may not even come to light for the elders, and there's this kind of echo in the background of, uh, of the Lord basically saying, some sins are well concealed and may only come to light at the eschatological judgment, but don't worry, all sin will come to light. And so also, what about guys fit for being elders? Well, good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. He says, in the same way, some, through their good works, are obviously fit to be pastors. Their deeds are known. Their eldering is happening. How do you know an elder? They're eldering before they're an elder. We don't make them elders. Elders, elder. You see it. You see their character. You see their life. You see their competencies. You see the care for others, right? They're eldering. They're doing the elder work. It's known. It's, evident, uh, it's obvious. When you talk about that person, everyone's like, I love that guy. Yes, he is doing that, right? It's clear. And then there are others, he says, that don't get that recognition. That some elders may come out of the woodwork to you guys. They're like, I haven't really recognized that person in the church. Their deeds aren't known, but they're there. This is basically encouraging someone whose deeds aren't readily noticed and under examination, they're going to be revealed. So the person that's like, man, I want to be an elder so bad, but they don't see me. Maybe I should do something awesome in front of everybody. It's like, don't do it. Don't do it. Be you. Don't draw attention to yourself. The Lord will make that clear and known how and when and where he wants. That's, that's the idea. And even if not, here's the thing, even if not, God knows and your good deeds cannot remain hidden. That's the point. All this to say, when you preach this, it just becomes clear, doesn't it? God desires qualified, honorable, protected, pure, and patiently selected elder leadership in the church. And you should come under that leadership. You should agree with them in their responsibilities, and they agree with you about the responsibilities they have towards you, which is to give an account for your soul in the end. And you are supposed to do it with joy and not with groaning. Excuse me, you're to do it so that we would have joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. That's Hebrews 13, 17. If we have this kind of ongoing interaction and we have these kind of elder leaders, we will put the gospel on display in a way that honors the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for 
First Timothy, thank you for all that's here, all that is to just guide us, Lord. We don't have uh, what we need without your word, and we don't want to make decisions apart from your word, and we're asking, Lord, that you would help to keep the pastor elders in our church uh, faithful, um, empowering them by your spirit, and that we would have this wonderful relationship within the church as members of the body, caring for one another, obeying scripture so that no matter what happens, you would be honored and glorified and your gospel would be purely put on display. Father, would you do that in our church? Would we be an example of that, not to toot our own horns, but because Christ is worthy in Jesus' name. Amen.